Welcome to our podcast. It's brought to you by the Turo Law Review and the Turo College Jacob D. Fuchsberg Law Center. Our topic for today is fair housing on Long Island with a particular focus on where we are since Newsday's Long Island Divide investigation and also how attorneys can help combat discrimination. We're fortunate enough to have two very distinguished panelists today, uh, Mr. Patrick Fife. Associate General Counsel of the Long Island Board of Realtors, and Mr. Ian Wilder, Executive Director of Long Island Housing Services. Before we get to the substance of our program, I invite each of our speakers to introduce themselves in a little more detail. And for our law student listeners, uh, perhaps tell them how they came to be at this point in their career and to hold the positions that they hold. So, Mr. Wilder, I'll begin with you. Welcome, and please introduce yourself. Hi there. My name is Ian Wilder. I am Executive Director of Long Island Housing Services. And uh, I took a very circuitous route to get here. Um, I guess the place to start is law school graduation. Um, I didn't have a position ready at the time. I actually did some uh, temp paralegal work for a while, ended up, and I graduated in D.C., ended up coming back here uh, to live in my parents' house, uh, tried practicing on my own. That wasn't going much of anywhere. Ended up doing some side work for some attorneys, including somebody that I'd gone to school with, um, and ended up working them for about a dozen years, mostly doing real estate work and some other local legal work. At the same time I was doing legal work, I spent a lot of my time both by myself and then uh, with uh, my wife doing a lot of social justice work after hours. And we would do it on no budget. I'd be doing PR for people and being at protests and events and other things. And it was kind of time for me to um, combine those things. And I got a job here, but I actually took a job as a housing counselor, not as an attorney. Um, And uh, attorney position opened up soon after I moved through a number of positions and ended up being executive director here, which is probably the best job I've ever had. I love my job. Well, I think it's important for our students to hear that. Also important to note that you were doing a related, though, non-legal position initially. And, you know, living with your parents, unfortunately, on Long Island, given our topic today, that's, uh, uh, you're a bit of a trendsetter when you didn't want to be, but, you know, that actually factors into everything we'll be talking about. So welcome. Thank uh, you. Our pleasure to have you. Mr. Fife, the same, please. Uh, let us know a little bit about how you got to where you are. Uh, okay, great. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me. Uh, pleasure to be here with Ian. Um, yeah, I guess I, I didn't have the traditional route necessarily either. Um, I'll even go back further. I, I went to college at Fordham University for my undergraduate I wanted to be a sports broadcaster. That's what I initially (laughs) set out to be. Um, Had the privilege of getting tutored a bit by uh, the legendary Hall of Fame broadcaster, Marty Glickman, uh, who's just was a tremendous 
individual. I could talk about them for, for hours, but um, realized that was not the career for me. Uh, talk about a career that's a very difficult path to uh, or industry to break into. Um, wound up going into the insurance industry for a couple of years out of undergraduate. Um, during that time, had the opportunity to work with attorneys and said, hey, you know what? I, I think I could get into that field. That's where I want to go. Um, had a girlfriend at the time who's now my wife, who was very encouraging and said, hey, go to law school. What, what you know, do it. So uh, quit a full-time job, uh, lived then with my parents, uh, kind of like Ian said. Uh, went to law school uh, at Hofstra, uh, graduated and um, did, did better than I expected. And I think that's because um, I had the benefit of working for a few years before going to law school. I, I literally treated law school like a job. And if I could give one piece of advice to your students out there is to, to do the same thing. Um, treat it like a job. And I, I think um, you will have more success that way. Um, wound up then from there, staying on Long Island, working at a law firm, uh, Nixon Peabody for a couple of years in their Long Island office, um, did primarily litigation work, um, and then decided wanted to move out further to Suffolk County. My wife at that time was going to graduate school. Uh, so, you know, we kind of supported each other. Uh, and wound up at another firm, uh, Toomey Latham, uh, and was there for 12 years or so and, and kind of expanded what I did. I, I liked litigation, but didn't want to be pigeonholed and got the opportunity to do real estate work, land use, some public interest work, some municipal work, uh, kind of a smattering of, of things, which um, was great for me. And, and then had the opportunity even to work with a lot of small and mid-sized businesses, um, almost being their kind of day-to-day -day outside general counsel. Um, and that's I, I enjoyed the variety, um, and then I was fortunate enough, uh, 2020, um, this opportunity at the Long Island Board of Realtors came up. Um, I decided to go for it, uh, wound up uh, taking a position here, uh, I guess I started eight days before the COVID pandemic hit. Um, so it was in person in my job for eight days. And then uh, for the next year and a half or so, kind of uh, interacted with most of my colleagues uh, through this format, Zoom, which was was kind of a different experience. But I, like Ian, I, I, I love what I do now. Um, I'm, I'm happy where I am and, and I get to do day-to-day -day legal work, working for a, a company that has about 70, 80 employees, but we're also a trade association that has about 30,000 members. Um, and so I'm involved not only as a lawyer helping in kind of the business operations, corporate governance, but also on the education side as well, um, educating our members about uh, updates to the law, fair housing. Um, so it's a kind of a unique position, but one that I really, um, really love at this point. Good. Well, I, I am glad you, you shared that. Uh, I think it's important, again, uh, Neither of you had particularly direct routes to where you are. That's okay. Uh, and you both love where you've ended up. Uh, I'll add that I love my job too. Uh, and not many people get to say that. So I think it is important to try to find your way to a place that you feel really, uh, really comfortable. And we'll have you come in and for my sports law class. Uh, and, and you can talk about the difficulties of the industry, which is like topic one on the, in that class. 
But now we turn to really a very significant, serious, important topic. Uh, and uh, we'll keep it informal as our speakers seem to have indicated. So Patrick, um, let us begin with you. Um, and a vast topic, but maybe you could start by telling us what changes have occurred to real estate laws and practices since the Newsday investigation and, you know, focusing on some New York law, increased broker supervision, training, testing, whatever you think is important. Okay. Um, all right. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously the Newsday Long Island divided investigation was um, groundbreaking. Um, it, it and and fortunately, it, its impact is still with us, and it's created a substantial number of changes um, at the state level in terms of new laws that have come out, and, and I think also at the industry level, um, not necessarily with laws, but but in terms of practices and, and recognition of um, fair housing. So I'll just talk briefly about it at the state law level. So you know, immediately following the investigation, the state Senate um, undertook hearings. Um, I think the first one was in December 2019. Um, they then held a second hearing September 2020 that that was delayed because of COVID. Um, and they actually used their subpoena power, um, which was, it's, I guess that in and of itself is a pretty rare thing for the Senate to do. Um, your students can check out the hearings. I think they were all recorded. They're available online. Um, the second set of hearings was done over Zoom. Um, so that was kind of an interesting, um, I guess, thing, because I don't think the Senate had done hearings like that over Zoom before. Um, they ultimately issued a, a almost 100 page, I think it was 97 page investigative report in early 2021. And then late in 2021, the governor signed uh, nine new laws uh, that related to fair housing and, and really targeted the real estate industry. And the industry was behind them. Um, the New York State Association of Realtors, which is the trade organization uh, for all realtors in the state, um, the local association supported these changes. Um, and you mentioned, you know, one broke, it really focused on three things, um, real estate broker supervision, um, increased training for real estate licensees and, and also um, increased funding for testing um, because, you know, the Newsday investigation utilized undercover testers. And I think the state Senate felt, you know, that's a real great way to, to, to kind of see are, are these laws being followed? And it's, it's an enforcement mechanism, a way to, you know, utilize enforcement mechanisms, but it's expensive. Um, so as far as broker supervision, uh, the state created mandatory standard operating procedures for real estate brokers, um, said that all brokers in the state have to have standard operating procedures for prospective home buyers that walk into a real estate office. Um, and the brokers have to make sure everyone in that office is following them um, and they have to publicize them. So members of the public know, am I, is this broker treating me the same way it says it's treating everyone else? Um, so there's transparency there. And, and so does the broker, and it's three things, does the broker require identification when people walk in the door? Uh, do they require an exclusive brokerage agreement? And do they require mortgage pre-approval? Because that was one of the things that the Newsday investigation found was, you know, you had people walking into offices being asked for different things, told different things, being treated entirely different just based on, um, you know, who they were um, as opposed to anything else. Um, they also increased or, or set 
qualifications for office managers in, in brokerage offices. A lot of the brokerage offices I think they found were large. Uh, they had many offices, they had office managers. And oddly enough, the law up until this change didn't define what an office manager had to do. There was no legal duty. Um, so now the law says, if you're an office manager, you have the same duty of supervision that the broker um, has. Uh, so you have to be involved in you know, regular personal guidance, instruction, oversight of, of anybody working in, in your office. So they, I think the state helped create an oversight structure and, and really force communication within the office so that um, people working for a broker know, hey, this is what the broker requires. Um, and, and there's there's that constant communication. Um, state also, um, <clears throat> real estate license training, they've, they've now required implicit bias and cultural competency training for all real estate licensees that just went into effect this past uh, September. Um, just like attorneys have continuing legal education requirements, real estate licensees have continuing education requirements. Um, but the state added that um, as something uh, beyond the fair housing training that licensees already have. And they increased the funding for testing. Um, so those were the three things they did. And, and just at an industry level, I, I just want to say, you know, again, um, the, the, the industry itself supported these changes. Um, and they've also made a lot of changes internally to um, increase training, increase the focus on fair housing, um, the changes to the realtor code of ethics that I could get into if you want, but it's a whole, you know, if you're a realtor, you agree to abide by a code of ethics. Um, it's, it's a little different than just having a real estate license, being a realtor, um, a little different, you know, than, than really almost any other trade association, but they made changes to the code of ethics, um, that go towards, uh, fair housing and treating, um, you know, everybody, uh, you know, treating all individuals equally. So, um, you know, I, I don't want to, I, I can talk about that a lot if you want, but, but um, I, I just, that, that's what, that's what's happened at, at the industry side, that the industry's kind of embraced this and, and, and agreed that there are things that can be done and, and, and more that can be done in the future. Well, I would like to talk about uh, maybe a little bit about the sort of continuing legal education and its focus on, uh, you know, fair housing training, if you were, but you mentioned a number of things, uh, well, three things, you know, supervision, how, uh, training and testing. Uh, Ian, if I, if I could go to you, I invite you to elaborate on any of those three. Sure. And I know you do have a specific uh, interest uh, in <laughs> testing. So uh, why don't you go ahead and, and elaborate as you feel uh, is significant? Sure. Um, I would say the whole thing coming out of the Long Island Divided is would be an interesting study in crisis management because uh, I, I will say that the Long Island Board of Realtors chose the path of getting in front of the problem whereas and Patrick does not have to comment on this some of the individual uh, real estate agents didn't chose a different path than that and it doesn't didn't play very well um so, and uh, the, what, how the state reacted was also crisis management because, you know, people looking to the state for how they regulate. As far as I'm concerned, I have a belief that often regulation actually does industry a favor. I think it particularly happens in the real estate industry because the public is probably generally not aware of this because it's in the weeds, but uh, real estate agents or as LIBOR before 
prefers to call them licensees, are 1099 employees. By the state setting out specific things that the brokers have to do, they're protecting that 1099 relationship because the IRS can't complain that they're overstepping into treating them as employees because the brokers can turn around and say, we're required by regulation to take these steps. Because normally a lot of the steps that they're now taking in terms of setting policy and everything else, step over from what a 1099 employee does to what a W-2 employee is treated. So I think in my world, it did the brokers a favor. It also provides protection. It provides them the ability to um, uh, collect statistics so they can make internal analysis if there's a problem. We're collecting those statistics. There might have been challenges about whether it's discriminatory doing it. So I think, I think the states provided the brokers a lot of cover. I hope the brokers are taking advantage of that to do things to tighten up their businesses that in some ways they may not have been able to do to stay within IRS regulations. Um, I, I also want to point out um, the problem we have is not a um, real estate agent problem. It's a systemic racism problem. And we're looking in one industry and seeing how that plays out. But we have this problem in every industry in housing. One of the things that we're starting to push for is we need similar guidelines for housing providers, for people who own uh, uh, apartment dwellings. One of the things I've been suggesting that's been showing up in Newsday a little bit is that uh, I think the place for that might be the municipalities provide the rental permits, that they should require the housing providers to also have set policies that maybe the municipalities, we can work with municipalities and they could have a foreign policy. The other thing is they might want to have something where they increase the fees for the rental permits if the uh, providers are, are seen as violating these laws. Because the state really doesn't oversee housing providers, the, t the towns and the villages do. But I think we need similar regulation in other industries, just like we're seeing the Biden administration step forward in terms of appraisers because there is a national part in terms of appraisals and we're seeing the discrimination in appraisals. So the problem is in every industry because it's a problem we've never dealt with in our society properly. So, and I'm glad we're dealing with it in this industry, but we need to deal with it in housing uh, overall. In terms of the testing, yes, I'm glad that Mr. we Mr. have Ian, some- Ian, before I'm sorry. we go to the testing, no, sure. no, please don't apologize because I, I ask you to comment on it, but you made some, important points so i do want to come back to you uh to talk about testing really immediately sure. but uh you you mentioned 1099 w2 uh certainly our law students are studying independent contractor they're studying employee the significant differences also the trend especially uh, uh particularly among the irs to try to have everybody be an employee uh, i think mm -hmm. it's harder to have people classified as an independent contractor than than it used to be so yes. I can understand the value of that. Uh, Patrick, though, with respect to um, some of the like changes in the in the code or whatever, the code of ethics, because the lawyer's code is also, you know, model rules, at least, uh, are trying to focus more on bias, et cetera. There really isn't much in there rather than general admonition to comply with the law. So is there any any particular point with respect to the, the code of ethics that uh, strikes you as, as significant? Uh, 
Uh, well, I mean, the most significant change, I, I would say that to the realtor code of ethics that was made, um, not directly in response to Newsday, but but um, you know, certainly following it was that at the, Na the National uh, Association of Realtors Code of Ethics, which all realtors have to abide by. And just to make the distinction for your, your students listening, so um, all realtors have to be real estate licensees, meaning they have a license to either be a broker or a salesperson, but not all real estate licensees are realtors. Um, you know, it's, it's licensees who choose to become a realtor. And, and one of the um, requirements to be a realtor is, hey, I'm going to abide by this code of ethics. And, and one change that was recently um, made, and, and it was really a first of the kind change in, in I think, any industry, it said, and, and I'm going to look at my screen and sheet and read it word for word, <laughs> uh, realtors must not use harassing speech, hate speech, epithets, or slurs based on race, color, religion, sex, handicap, familial status, national origin, sexual orientation, or gender identity. Um, and, and in addition to adding that to the code of ethics, they said, it applies in any context. This isn't just in connection with a real estate transaction. This is in anything a realtor does. So, you know, the, the National Association felt not only is this speech kind of, it's, it's abhorrent, but it cuts directly against the mission of realtors, which is to protect and advance the right to real property for all. So if somebody's making these comments, even outside of their real estate practice, that's evidence of one's inability to treat people equally. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I, I haven't seen, you know, other, I'll say associations kind of go to that effort, um, but it, it's something that is now part of the Realtor Code of Ethics um, and, and something, and, and the Code of Ethics is actually enforced. I mean, that's one of the other things that, that I'm involved in. We have a whole professional standards department. So a member of the public can make a complaint against a realtor. Um, and, and that whole, there's a whole due process proceeding that then takes place. Um, so it's a, it's a kind of an administrative process within our, our whole, um, our whole industry. Um, and, and, you know, there are, there are complaints that are made and they're processed and there's hearings that are actually held and discipline can then be imposed. Well, I'm actually very glad that I asked you this because, uh, as a professional responsibility professor, uh, what the code, uh, by the way, I have my broker's license because lawyers can get them so easily. So I don't know, maybe I'll be hearing from you. Uh, but uh, uh, one of the big debates going on with respect to the model rules uh, is whether they should apply uh, to sort of bias, et cetera, outside of the practice of law, which is what you just said the realtors uh, are doing. It's not just within your office, but if you're running around you know, harassing and discriminating in other aspects of your life, uh, should that be prohibited by the model rules, which every state of California adopts? So that's really a parallel discussion that's happening. Uh, although realtors may be further along with that, uh, that's very interesting. But, you know, we can make all these changes and, and they're significant, but has to be enforced in some way, which brings us right back to testing. And so, uh, Ian, I invite you to, to educate us about what testing is in, in all its, uh, its detail. Well, 
I, I will give a lot of credit to Newsday. They did a very good job of educating the public about the most common type of testing, which is where you have two testers for comparison. Um, when we talk about testing, it's kind of like uh, what most people think of a secret shopper, except it's ratcheted up to a level where we have a chain of evidence and uh, everything is carefully constructed that if it has to end up being used in court, it's of a quality that can be used in court. Thankfully, in New York State, we have a one-party recording law, so we are allowed to make tape recordings. That resolves disagreements very quickly because uh, when we get to the point where we share recordings with uh, someone we, we, we have a testing complaint against, um human memory is an imperfect thing um but it's very hard to deny your voice on a tape saying what you said um so the most common scenario as newsday describes is you send you send out one tester within a protected class so that could be um some within a certain racial category, someone with a disability, someone with a certain type of source of income, and you send out somebody who's not within that class, and you see if they treated differently or if different things are said to them. Often, uh, uh, as in the Newsday series, discrimination is not explicit. People, except for the one agent who m mentioned, I don't want to steer, but a phrase that the, the should have blown up in her head the second she said it. Um, but there is, uh, most of the time, it's how the, the people are treated, what opportunities they're offered, what they're told is available, even if they get callbacks, uh, what, if they're given a phone number, what phone number, if they're allowed to see some, something, if they're given uh, forms to fill out or not, if they're told that they have to have a mortgage commitment before they're taken out, it, you know, uh, Terms can be can vary a great deal in what people are offered. Now, I, I will tell you that uh, we do testing at a level where it's not a mistake. It's not somebody was about to leave for lunch and just treated somebody quickly, or they were hungry and they were just running out the door. Our testing is done in a way, um, it, it, we've been doing this for decades. It's done in a way where it's very clear that there is a pattern here and we will not bring a complaint unless we believe that it not only meets the standard that the administrative has for uh, probable cause, but that we believe if it had to go to federal court, we would win. Um, because our reputation is the strongest thing we have. If anybody's been involved with civil rights legislation, you already have strikes against you when you're doing it. Um, so you wanna make sure you have an extremely strong case. And on the other hand, we're very happy if we do testing and we find no discrimination. That means people are obeying law. That's a good day for us yeah. because ultimately that's what we want. You know, I've said it would be great if we were put out of business, but I don't see it happening anytime soon. So um, I will tell you, usually when we get an individual complaint from somebody, that complaint ends up being justified. We do have people come in and we assist them. We investigate we make sure there's something to the complaint. If we carry it forward, usually at the point we're doing testing, there usually is something to it. But we also do testing in the market because we can't just depend on complaints. 
we have a huge market here. We have a lot of people involved in the housing industry. And sometimes those come back uh, either insufficient or nothing at all. And that's great. And sometimes they don't. And as I mentioned to somebody recently, sometimes we settle complaints with people and then they supposedly put policies in place and everything should be fine. And then we get more complaints and do more testing and see the same problem again, which makes me very sad. Yeah. I mean, I can understand. I mean, you know, you'd like, I'm not sure you'd like to be quote unquote out of business, but you sure would like to switch from uh, gathering evidence against to simply monitoring and, and having good day after good day after good day. But as you say, we're not there make a couple of uh, very important points. I mean, this is really, you've got to know the law as you uh, navigate this. And even things like, you know, New York being a one-party permission state, as you said, meaning you, if, as long as you're a party to a conversation, you can record it. Other states are two-party permission, so you couldn't do that. Uh, so all that's critical. Uh, and you certainly mentioned, you know, how important it is to know the law uh, so maybe, Ian, you could help us uh, understand a couple of things, and then Patrick, of course, would come back to you. But one, what would be sort of the limits on a lawyer participating in testing? Uh, and then given those limits, what can lawyers do if they cannot be involved in testing? Okay. Um, the general interpretation, and you can correct me since it's more your area of expertise than mine, is that um, there is a limit on uh, lawyers taking part in basically a fiction or an untruth in preparation for litigation. There's been interpretations of that section to say that uh, lawyers could not be testers because they would be presenting themselves as somebody else in a different circumstance for testing that could potentially go into litigation. I have heard some attorneys who disagree with that, but uh, that's generally the interpretation I've seen, that attorneys cannot be testers for that reason. Now, is there anything else testers can do? There's a, uh, the lawyers can do, there's a lot of things lawyers can do. In fact, Toro Law Review was just nice enough to print my article titled, 20 Things You Can Do to Fight Fair Housing. Now, one of them was become a tester, but there's still 19 more. I mean, in their practice, there's lots of things they can do. Obviously, they can advise their clients. If they're representing sellers, they can advise their, their clients as sellers, especially if, if they want to say, oh, I only want to sell to this demographic. They can tell them why that's not allowed. You know, my neighbors wouldn't like X kind of people living here. Or if, they, uh, if, if um, it's a real estate broker, they can advise them, especially updates on the law and what the existing law is. Same thing with housing providers. We have had, we have had source of income laws in our counties for about a decade each, yet we are still seeing violations of that law. And not only um, violations that are things like um, you shouldn't be requiring a rent to income ratio where they want a multiple of the rent as income, and we can get into what that means, but explicit violations like we don't accept vouchers, we don't accept uh, you know housing choice vouchers, we don't accept Section Eight, which is explicit, direct, clear violations of a law that's been on the books for a long time. Um, so 
attorneys can do uh, all those things directly. Now, attorneys are citizens. They can do like everybody else. They can advocate for stronger laws, for, for better funding, for better use of the funds that go through. Um, they can uh, advocate for additional laws, like the things we're talking about with the towns, with the rental permits. There's lots of things uh, that attorneys can do just as citizens um, who care about justice in our society. And my belief is that the freer society we have, the better it works. Um, uh, race racism has done a study and has found that people in communities of color generally would rather live in a diverse neighborhood, not in a neighborhood of one demographic of people, but they are often denied that choice. Urban League, I, I believe, did a study that showed if people in communities of color were allowed to access all the opportunities available on Long Island, we ha would have, and I believe it's billions to be more in our economy. So we are cheating ourselves of full potential. And I think the thing Patrick would probably agree to me with is that housing is central to people's lives. It's where you can go to school. It's the quality of food is available in your neighborhood. It's what kind of social connections you can make, which can lead to what kind of jobs, what kind of influences there are on your children. It, it affects people's uh, lives so much, which is why I understand, you know, uh, real estate agents might say there's a great deal of regulation on them, but the actions they take have such an influ influential effect on the lives of both adults and children that it's necessary because where you live, I mean, uh, the Obama administration said it well. They said a child's zip code should not determine their life. And the, uh, you know, every child should have the opportunity. And where you live is is uh, unfortunately right now a determinant. All right. Well, uh, I mean that. You know, I respect your passion uh, and also some of the details that you've given us. Uh, one point that you made at the beginning about how to interpret the lawyers, uh, the lawyers' code of ethics. There is, in fact, a section that says uh, you have you you can't make deceptive statements to third parties. Of course, it's very general. And then, as you said, it can be interpreted. It's got to be interpreted by bar associations, et cetera, and ultimately by the court. Uh, and if they feel that that kind of investigation uh, is causing the lawyer to be uh, making a false statement to a third party, you run a follow of the code. Yes, that's disputed among lawyers. I mean investigations yeah. as well uh I, I will give you go ahead i'll give you a chance to come up and then i want to go back to patrick please. sure I, I i go back to patrick i will want to say i believe there are some places that have carved out an exception for enforcing things like civil rights laws um where, where it, it's not meant to take advantage of somebody but to enforce the law and i think that is a discussion we have to have within our own bar at mm -hmm. some point it's like every every sentence we utter is like the basis for another what I would call vast topic. So right there, there's a whole couple hours. Yes. To, yes. You know what jurisdictions have and have not done and should or should not do in terms of that point. But but Patrick, uh, you know, you have I know a perspective as to what lawyers can do uh, and what other uh, improvements may need to be made in the law or 
you know, whatever criticism you may have. So what, if you don't mind, tell us uh, what you think lawyers can do, and then we'll go on to uh, maybe where the law might still need some evolution. Sure. Well, I, I, I agree 100% with Ian. I mean, that, that education um, is key, that, that lawyers should be educating their clients about the fair housing laws, in particular, real estate attorneys. I mean, I, I think it should be part of the discussion. We, we've encouraged you know, our, our audience, meaning LIBOR's audience is real estate brokers, real estate salespersons. We've encouraged them to, hey, you should have this discussion with your clients, with your customers at the outset. We've actually created just this year some tools for them to say, just like Ian was saying, that housing providers don't necessarily understand their obligations. They can't discriminate either. I mean, I know Newsday's focus was central on the real estate industry, the licensees, but it it all comes down also to the sellers, to the landlords. And, and oftentimes the first point of communication, it is the attorney in some instances. I mean, it, it is often the real estate agent, but it, it can be the attorney a lot of times. I know a lot of our, our members get their you know referrals from attorneys. So attorneys are involved in the beginning. And, and I think it's really critical for them to have that conversation to say, hey, you, you, know, you can't discriminate. This is what discrimination looks like. I mean, we've given, we've created these little simple one pagers and we've told our members, you know, really, this is something that you should consider putting in that packet when you go to meet with someone. So it's, it's an entryway for you to have that conversation with somebody that um, this is something you can't do. And, and I, I think I think a lot of sellers, a lot of landlords don't necessarily understand what discrimination can look like, um, that it doesn't just take the face of, of outright, I'm not selling to this person or I'm not renting to this person. There's a lot more things um, that, that it can, can mean. Um, so I, I definitely think education, and I, I was going to also add one other area where um, I think attorneys get involved in is even in the commercial space, we're talking about housing, but it's illegal in New York to discriminate in the commercial space as well. Um, so, and I, I know a lot of attorneys get involved more on the commercial side and you can have certainly discrimination in um, of, of, you know, businesses based on a protected characteristic. Um, so I, I think it's important for attorneys who invo are involved in commercial transactions to, to be educating their clients that discrimination in that arena is just as illegal uh, as it is in the residential um, context. What I find interesting about this is, uh, I guess, Patrick, particularly from your position, uh, obviously, there, there's a huge, you know, you have a lot of members with all sorts of political views. But it's, it's almost like you're allowed to approach this from a perspective that is not remotely political. This is the law. I'm not really asking whether you think it's a good idea or a bad idea, my, you know, my potential seller, my potential landlord. Uh, and I'm not trying to come off as you know, a political advocate, uh, you know, regardless of one's personal feelings, this is the law. So let's just have a business to business discussion as to what you need to do. I mean, that seems it, to me. It is. It's, it's the law. But I, and I've heard Ian say this too. The one color that matters here is green. It's good for business not to discriminate. I mean, if you think about it, you know, in, in the, the real estate context, if you don't discriminate, that means more buyers, right? And, and that means more competition and competition typically yields higher prices. And when it comes to 
you know, real estate professionals, higher prices typically means more compensation for that real estate professional. So it's just good business not to discriminate in addition to being the law. And, and you know, we've tried to advocate that point as well. Um, so, you know, it's, 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 there's dual purposes here. It's, it's not only the law, but you, you're going to make more money if, if you follow the law and don't discriminate. You know, that's I, just, I'm sorry. Ian, I want you to go, go ahead, please. Um, yeah. I even see it as a business opportunity. I'm surprised that I haven't seen a broker jump in the front of this and say, look, we've seen this problem and this is who we are. And, and we have these things, we have these things in place. And uh, in order to bring in, especially millennials who are much more interested in, in non-discrimination uh, to bring in uh, communities that have felt uncomfortable necessarily um, dealing with professionals, uh, I, I think there's a, there's what what uh, in Harvard they call a blue ocean strategy here, that you could turn this around and what Patrick's talking about and use this as a business plan. I think there's there's even more here than just not discriminating. I think you could put it at the front of your marketing. So besides it being, and I agree a thousand percent. It, 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 it you know, there's there's so many capitalist arguments for obeying what the law already is in terms of having more people available. And the bigger the market is, the better off everybody is. So I'm sorry, go ahead. No, that's fine. I mean, when capitalism and social justice merge, you know, does the world blow up like anti and antimatter, or does it become a little closer to, uh, to paradise? Uh, so those are two great, you know, very different perspectives that are, are bringing us to the same conclusion, you know, the same goal really well I, I would argue that that they're not as far as apart as you think because the textbook definition of capitalism is buyers and sellers with equal information and equal power and when you have discrimination it's because you have a power imbalance which to me isn't capitalism i would say getting rid of getting rid of discrimination is getting closer to what the textbook definition of capitalism actually is Okay, uh, Patrick, uh, you can you can comment. Uh, I don't want to end this, so I absolutely will not. Uh, that's the one uh, power that I have. Uh, I want to keep it going a little longer. And, and Patrick, maybe you could pick up on that, or you could turn to uh, some of the final topics that we wanted to address, uh, which are areas of law that need more attention, whether it's uh, lawful source income or co-op transparency or, you know, accommodation. Uh, I mean, again, three vast topics, but I would like you both to comment on any or all of those. And Patrick, uh, let's turn to you if, if, uh, if we may. I'll, I'll start quickly with lawful source of income. I know Ian's touched on it a bit, um, so I don't want to go too in depth, but um I, I, I think there needs to be more education on that topic. And, and we as a real estate association have started to try to do that. Um, Ian mentioned lawful source of income. It became a protected class in 2019 in New York. I, it just seems like a foreign concept to a lot of people. They hear lawful source of income and they get kind of lost in the words. I, that, that's the way I think it, it, it is that it's 
it's just something people aren't used to necessarily hearing. And, and you know, the way I explain it to our members when I, I teach it is, well, you know, a housing provider can ask you about income. They can say, where do you get your income from? They can ask you for documentation proof. Where does the income come from? Um, but they have to treat it all the same. They can't say, uh, you know, Ian, he's got a job and, oh, you know, Peter, he gets his money from Social Security. I like Ian better. You can't do that. You have to treat them all uh, the same. And, and lawful source of income includes so many different things. You know, we, we talked a little bit about vouchers in Section 8, but it goes further than that. It's, it's alimony, child support, Social Security. Um, you have to treat them all the same. You, you can't discriminate favor one over the other. Um, and, and another area that I, another nuance within this for, for real estate licensees that we've tried to educate them on is, you know, there are exceptions to, or protections, uh, from not, not protections, but exceptions to the discrimination laws saying that source of in, lawful source of income doesn't apply to a rental unit in an owner occupied one family, two family home. Um, and I think a lot of people hear that and say, okay, great. You know, even real estate licensees hear that and say, well, I, I've got, you know, Mr. Jones is uh, renting his legal upstairs apartment. Um, so, you know, the, the, the discrimination laws don't apply. Um, so he could say, I don't want Section 8. And that's, no, they do. And that's what we try to get across. Those exemptions don't carry over to the real estate licensee. Once Mr. Jones says, I'm hiring you as my broker, you've got to follow the law. That, that exemption's gone. There's no carve-outs or exemptions for real estate professionals. And, and we've really tried to um, make our members and, and real estate licensees aware that if somebody gives you that instruction, you've got to tell them that's unlawful. I can't do that. And if they refuse, you've got to terminate that relationship, um, document the termination, end it right there. Um, possibly consult with an attorney at that point. Um, but, you know, we, we really tried to get the word out to our members and to the public as well. Uh, because again, I, I think it's not just our members and real estate licensees, but it's the public, the housing providers that need to know. And we created a whole campaign just this summer uh, called Home for All of Us. It's homeforallofus.org. Um, just to put some information out there to the public, to our members specifically about different housing discrimination issues and one of them the first one being being lawful source of income and i know ian's been on this i know his organization's um uh, brought uh some some lawsuits on this subject so i'm sure he he probably wants to comment on it as well i like working with patrick and this is one of the few times it's going to sound like i disagree with a couple of things uh, source of income uh discrimination has been illegal in nassau and suffolk county for about a decade each. So at this point, you know, by the way, 2019 is now three years ago. So there's, there's, there's no excuse. And what I compare it to is that would be like a pizzeria saying, well, the Board of Health changed their rules 10 years ago and I haven't paid attention. Being a housing provider is a job. It's a full-time job. I used to be in private practice. I would tell my clients, if you want to be a landlord, it's another 40 hour a week job. If you can't do that, don't do the job. So as far as I'm concerned, I, I, I'm not that forgiving. It's been the law for a very long time. Second, the piece of advice I would give everybody is don't look at cutouts in the law because you will end up getting trouble anyway. Because uh, Patrick mentioned the landlord says, 
And that's the problem. Once the landlord says, especially if they say, let's say it's a one, it's, it's a one family with an apartment, but once they say to a potential tenant, I don't, that's a different section of the law. And now it still becomes a fair housing violation. So my general advice to everybody is don't look at the cutouts, just obey the law, because there are exceptions to the exceptions. And it's just easier to just tell everybody than, than to try and understand the different exceptions and the differences between the laws and just, just obey the law. Assume source of income is the law, regardless of whether you have you know, a one-bedroom apartment or you have uh, a whole development and uh, you won't get you know, you're not going to get in trouble that way. But if you try and depend on exceptions to protect you, you better start, study the law very carefully because you may still end up getting in trouble. Um, and yeah, I do find it frustrating that we are still continually finding people disobeying these laws. Now, we bring the cases now based on the New York state law because it's state law, but we have brought the cases based on Suffolk law. We had, as far as we know, the only decision in Suffolk County under the Suffolk law, because when we brought the case was before the state law was passed, against a housing provider on source of income. And it was actually a case that, among other things, they could not do a rent-to-income ratio, say that their income had to be a multiple of the rent, because when you have a voucher, that money goes directly to rent, so you don't need a lot more money to pay your rent, besides which if you have a multiple of the rent amount, you probably, for your income, you probably wouldn't qualify for that voucher anyway. Because if you have that much income, you probably wouldn't qualify for the voucher based on income. So it's a problem in two ways. And we had a decision based in Suffolk on that. Uh, it's pretty clear how the state feels on that. But we are still seeing the same things over and over and over again. So I'm glad LIBOR is stepping in to to do education and it's a shame that they're having to do it in a secondary way and that there's not a direct way like a housing providers or organization that's the equivalent of a LIBOR that's not educating and I'm not talking about mom and pop single families I'm talking about the the cases we've had over the last year are all housing developments with multiple multiple units these are people who this is their main business, not their side income from an apartment. Okay. So they should know better. Patrick, you could you could comment on that, uh, or you uh, you know, and again, I'm I'm now sorry to sort of say bullet point here, uh, or you could talk a little bit about co-op transparency or or accommodation. So I give you your. Uh, no, I I mean again, I I agree with everything that Ian just uh, you know raised in terms of the points about lawful source of, of, of income. Um, and we certainly don't teach that there is an exception. It's just, uh, yeah. you know, what happens is a number of our, our I've, I've heard members go and been at programs where other speakers have said, oh, there's this Mrs. Murphy exemption to the source of it. Don't. And then they, that they just hear that and they just tune everything else out. And I, I, you know, we're very clear with it. It doesn't apply to you. Don't even think about it. It just block it out of your mind. Um, like Ian said, the, the law, you know, as it comes to you, the, the all you need to know is it applies and, and you and whoever your customer or client is must follow it uh, under all circumstances. Um, 
I guess the the other issue we should definitely hit on is is I think co-op transparency because I, I know both of our organizations have been very involved in in trying to get um, statewide co-op transparency. I know that um, both have been involved at the local level getting getting local laws um, passed for co-op transparency. Um, I, I know the New York State Association of Realtors has made this one of its legislative priorities year after year, um, because there is no state law that requires a um, clear time frame for responses to applicants to co-op boards or, or requires that co-op boards provide um, a reason for denials uh, when, when someone applies. I mean, fair housing laws certainly apply to cooperatives. It's, 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 there's, there's no question about that. Um, but you know, proving illegal discrimination when it comes to co-ops is is difficult because co-ops they're they're not required to disclose their reason for rejecting um, a, a prospective uh, applicant, and and applicants have to provide a heck of a lot more information um, to a co-op board than than they would ordinarily in a, in a in a purchase. I mean, they're, they're they're providing financial information, background information. They're they're often sitting for um, interviews, you know, face-to-face -face interviews, a review process that goes often in, on, and then the deliberation that goes on in, in secret. Um, so it, it provides a potential vehicle for um, illegal housing discrimination, because you're getting this board who's learning a lot more about the who is purchasing as opposed to what's, you know, do they have the money? Uh, what are the terms? That's, you know, in a, in a sale, that's really all you should be looking at, whereas these co-ops because they're looking at so many different things, have the potential um, to discriminate. So um, at a local level, there, there are laws, Suffolk County, uh, I think Ian was at 2009, I think when their law went into effect, it's, it's been on the books for a while. Um, th there is a law that, that requires certain timeframes be met um, in terms of acknowledging receipt of an application, time for review and um, giving a reason for a rejection if one is given. Um, LIBOR was heavily involved in, in Nassau County in getting a law passed. Unfortunately, that law doesn't require the disclosure of the reason someone gets rejected. There's only requirements for a co-op board to acknowledge receipt of an application and to respond. Um, but you know that that is certainly an area that both of our organizations feel there needs to be um, a, a statewide law that um, really closes this loophole. Um, and I, I know I've, I've heard Ian talk about it. I'm sure he can give you more about the, the, the benefits of having a statewide co-op transparency bill and, and, and why it is so important to, to Long Island as, as a community. Ian, please do. Please do comment on that. Sure. Start with, if anybody from the news, the editorial board is listening, uh, both organizations have a joint op-ed piece that we've been trying to get in about why it's necessary. Um, and Patrick hit on the important thing. And I go back to my argument. If there is, for instance, a management company that covers Nassau and Suffolk, they're dealing with different laws. That doesn't make for easy way to run a business, which is why I like a statewide law. So it's clear because otherwise you're dealing with different areas that have different rules. It's confusing. What if someone tries to buy a co-op in Nassau and or Suffolk 
and, and was unable in one and goes to the other and, and they have different rights, which also doesn't make sense. It's a time for us to pass a statewide law similar to the one in Suffolk, as Patrick said well, that has disclosure. And by the way, I'm speaking as a former co-op board member. I sat on my co-op board for three years um, and I see no reason why you can't give an explanation. I will tell you the one person I remember us trying to work with and ultimately having to turn down, we gave them a very clear reason about, and it was monetary, why we couldn't approve it. But Patrick is also right. When you buy a house, you don't do a personal face-to-face -face interview. But when you're joining a co-op, and th there are reasons for it, but you're doing a face-to-face -face interview, which makes the person's demographics and appearance become something that's in the process that you don't even necessarily know on a contract. You know, if the, if the contract says John Smith is buying your house, you have no idea what John Smith looks like or anything else. And you you may not, you know, you may not have even seen them when they did the initial walkthrough. The, the, the agent may have handled it. The homeowner may not have even been there. The homeowner might not see them till right before closing when they do the last walkthrough. So uh, it's very much needed in the state. And I will say another reason it's needed is because it's because those transactions are so deep in the process, it is very difficult for agencies like ours to do testing. So there's not another way, a good way that we have to enforce the laws. Because you might say, well, you guys are out there. You'll take care of it. Well, this is an area where it's very hard for us to take care of it because it's deep, deep in the process. So we do need a law on the books. It's not an unfair law. I'm speaking both in my position as a former co-op board member. It's very reasonable to give somebody a reason why they can't buy. And also that gives them an opportunity to dispute it. Maybe you misunderstood at the meeting. Um, so I, we're in 100% agreement on this. Well, uh... That might be uh, uh, a good place then to, to bring this to a conclusion. Uh, so I thank our panelists very, very much for uh, giving us uh, such an informative and really critical uh, discussion. Uh, although I am going to say, let me give each of you, if you want a last word, one thought for us to take uh, from this. Uh, I invite you to, to leave us with that thought. Uh, you know, if you want to go first on this, any final parting thought that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Well, just because attorneys can't be testers, it doesn't mean that our law students who have lots of family members and friends who aren't attorneys can't be testers because we are always, always looking for more testers the training is very interesting. The work is very fulfilling. I hear from the testers all the time. So please reach out to us if you're interested in helping enforce civil rights laws. Thank you. Uh, and Patrick, I invite you if you'd like to leave us with a final thought. Sure. Well, I, I guess just this whole podcast is illustrated. There's so many different areas, even within this one specific area um, that that someone can look into from from a lawyer's perspective. So I, I would just say that um, encourage your students that you know, just look at look deeply because there are a lot of different avenues to get into something. So if, if you when you graduate or if you're in school and you're not 
particularly happy with where you are or, or the direction you're going, just explore a little deeper because there, there are just so many nuances within each area of the law um, that there, there are opportunities to, um, to, to progress to different things. Um, you know, you, you can find opportunities to ultimately do what you want um, even if they're not within your particular job when you graduate or years after you graduate, um, th th this, this industry has a tremendous number of, of, of opportunities. Um, so never feel like you're, you're stuck. Uh, keep, keep exploring and, and you'll ultimately, hopefully, like, like Ian and I, I think find something uh, you do that you really love and, and are passionate about. Well, Thank you both very, very much. Our panelists have been um, uh, Patrick Fife, uh, Ian Wilder, uh, talking about fair housing on Long Island, uh, you know, just a few of the many issues in that regard. Uh, but we thank them. Uh, I've been your moderator, Professor Peter Zablotsky. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you, uh, and thank you very much. Mm -hmm.